Well, you might know that the epitaph on the grave of the renowned slave trader turned pastor reads as follows. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. Now that's something to write on your tombstone. You probably know John Newton's name more famously for another reason, and that is in 1779, one of his most famous poems was set to music in what we know today as the precious anthem, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Another stanza goes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." What's so amazingly clear for us as well this morning is that the famous apostle Paul, that is the author of the letter of 1 Timothy that we're reading from this morning, and about a dozen other New Testament letters, and the man who himself had encountered personally the risen Jesus on that road to Damascus, there on his way to destroy and harass the church of Jesus Christ, and was unceremoniously appointed as Christ's own instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. What's clear from our text this morning is that this blasphemer, this persecutor, and this insolent opponent turned apostle and preacher, never got over, never got over. He never got over God's amazing grace. Do we? In a verse that the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon referred to as the whole gospel in a single sentence, or in a single verse, that is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 in your text. Look there if you will. We read the following. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Dear friend, religion teaches man how he might try to reach out for God, but grace teaches man how Christ came down to reach us. It's quite striking to observe that the Apostle Paul actually says here, what he says Here in the first of actually five faithful sayings recorded in the New Testament, all of them, by the way, occur in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and also the book of Titus, oddly enough. Paul sets down the biblical gospel in nine simple words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds a little postscript that might be shocking to some, but not surprising to me, knowing Paul now as I do, of whom I am the foremost. There's an interesting personal progression to be observed in at least three different places for the Apostle Paul 
and how he describes himself and his status as a servant of Jesus. Perhaps you've noted them before. The first, of course, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 7 to 9, where Paul is remembering his own encounter with the risen Jesus. This is written about a decade before the letter of 1 Timothy, and Paul says this, Then he, that is the risen Christ, we celebrated his resurrection last Sunday, right? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. This is not right after Paul got saved, but it's also not at the very end of his life. And Paul describes himself as here the least of the apostles. Fast forward about five years and then read from his epic letter to the Ephesian church. And Paul makes another rather astonishing statement about his humble position among the people of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says here, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm the least of the apostles. Here now, I'm the least of all the saints. And then finally, again, just fast forward a few more years and just prior to Paul's death by tradition, by beheading under Nero in Rome, he has one more thing to say about his own position and lack of prominence in the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you notice the pro progression of a man gripped by grace? In the space of about 15 years, Paul went from the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to finally the foremost of all sinners. Is that the direction that you're headed in as a disciple? Are we getting bigger and bigger in our own vision or smaller and smaller in the vision of grace? Going back just for a moment to John Newton... It is noted that towards the end of his quite remarkable life, and he died in the year 1807, that he made the following amazing, amazing statement that still echoes uh, through the years. He says fa famously, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. First, I am a great sinner. And second, Christ is a great Savior. What's the principle at play here? What's the lesson to be learned? Is it not this? That the older that we get in the Lord, and the deeper we grow in the gospel, the clearer we see two commensurate realities. First, the grandeur 
of Jesus Christ and of his saving power and glory over our lives. And secondly, the grit and the grime of our own personal sinfulness and utter need for Jesus's grace. In other words, the closer, friend, you get to Jesus, spiritually, the more profound your sense and of need will be for him. I've never forgotten the words of one of the godliest women I've ever met in my entire life. What she said to me personally, now about 10 or 11 years ago, before we came to Trinity. Her name is Sonia Rentschler. Sonia's late husband, a gentleman by the name of Carl, was what came to be called New Beginnings Bible Fellowship Church's first pastor. I joined that group as their first church planter and the pastor when the church was established as a particular church in the BFC soon after Carl's death. One day when Sonia and I were visiting together at her home and talking together about the Lord, she just really got quite emotional. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about at the time, but she looked at me and she said simply, Pastor Dan, if you only knew the sinfulness of my heart, if you only knew how black my heart was and how incredible it is to me that God would love me. God's saving grace, she said, is incredible that it would save a sinner like me. And I've never gotten over that. Because she's who I like to call Saint Sonia. She's one of the sweetest, most giving, most generous women I've ever met in my entire life. Friends, she is a living testament to the fact that the closer you get to Jesus, the clearer you see your utter desperation for him. I often pray, Lord, help me age, help me grow like Sonia. Let me ask you today, what's your personal testimony? Do you have one? How did God save you and why did God save you? If you were to take a piece of paper, amen, I like that. If you were to take a piece of paper and write the letter T on the paper in the center of it, a large capital T, and above the crossbar of the T, you wrote something akin to my personal testimony of God's saving grace, what would you fill in on the BC side, the before Christ side, the, the left side, if you will, of the crossbar? What was your life like, in other words, before Titus 3.5 and following happened to you? Titus 3.5 saying, of course, that he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, this saying is trustworthy. There's the last of the five. And I want to insist on these things so that, you, that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. Let me ask you, friend, what is on the BC side of your personal testimony? And then similarly, what is on the AC side or the uh, after conversion or after Christ side? In other words, what sort of difference has the grace of Jesus made in you and to you and through you since you were saved? Surely you're not the same as you were before you met Jesus. 
What's your story of personal salvation, of the grace of God, as Paul says here in 1 Timothy 1, overflowing towards you with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus? Simply put, how has grace changed you? For me, it was about 14 years of blatant hypocrisy and selfish and sinful pride. It was 14 years of playing religion, of going to church and thumbing through the Bible occasionally when I felt like it, of tossing up shotgun prayers when I needed help on a math test or some other problem had come my way. It was at least a handful of years of regularly polishing the outside of the cup, while on the inside my heart was full of lust and greed and envy. And sadly, most of all, of spiritual arrogance and pride. Listen, for the first 14 years of my life, I had virtually everyone around me fooled. Even had myself fooled. Thinking that I was a good boy. That I was a golden boy, even. That I was an example of a Christian teenager in my own southern hometown in Tennessee. In short, most people who knew me thought I was a faithful Christian. But I knew I was a fraud as a Christian. That is until April 18th, 1994. Ironically, and it isn't lost on me just two days from now, 29 years ago. I'll never forget that night. Sitting, in there, sitting right there in my public high school's football stadium and hearing an evangelist proclaim the gospel powerfully and clearly like I had never heard it before. As God broke my heart and convicted me of my sinful hypocrisy and pride and mercifully and wonderfully forgave my sins because of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that night, April 18th, 1994, happens to be my mom's birthday. Jesus Christ became real to me personally and profoundly for the first time. Though I had heard about him and had even taught about him many times before. I understood that Jesus' perfect life alone, his perfect obedience to the Father alone is what gets us right with God. That his substitutionary death on the cross was sufficient for my sin. That his glorious resurrection from the dead was my only hope of heaven. I received God's pardoning mercy by repenting of my sins and turning actively to the Lord Jesus Christ that night. And I was wonderfully and marvelously born again. I went from spiritual death to spiritual life instantaneously. The old nature had passed away, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and a new spiritual union and nature had arrived in Jesus and his mercy. Some two years later, the same evangelist was traveling through my hometown again, and the Lord led him to uh, speak in such a way that I surrendered the call of gospel ministry. And the rest, as they say, is his story of grace and mercy to me. What's your story? Well, like so many of you, and certainly like myself, the Apostle Paul knew that his life and his ministry 
was itself nothing shy of a testimony of God's amazing grace. Our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, is actually one of six places in the New Testament where you can read about Paul's incredible testimony. Not once or even twice, but six places tell us his story, at least in part. Let me give them to you now, and we'll only make reference to them as we proceed through the rest of this sermon. The first, of course, is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22, the original account of Paul's dramatic Damascus Road conversion. That's Acts 9, 1 to 22. The second is found several chapters later in Acts 22, verses 6 through 21. Here we have Paul's testimony of his salvation before the Gentiles as he was arrested there in Jerusalem on the steps of the temple. The third account is found a few chapters later in Acts chapter 26, verses 4 through 23, where Paul gives a similar account of his dramatic testimony here before the Romans, before the Gentiles, specifically to the governor Festus, and before King Agrippa, just prior to sailing for Rome as he stood trial before Caesar. The fourth is found in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 24. And there Paul provides a bit of the backstory behind his incredible apostolic ministry. And perhaps we can slide in Philippians chapter 3 as well. Philippians 3, verses 4 to 10, where Paul points to his ethnic and religious resume as being counted next to nothing to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through him. Those five plus First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, are the six instances of Paul's dramatic testimony found in the New Testament. But I ask you this, why is it that the Holy Spirit led Luke, the, the author of Acts, to record Paul's testimony not once and not twice, but three times? And why is it that the Holy Spirit led Paul himself to write portions of his testimony in three additional places? Why is that? Why here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, does the Apostle Paul seemingly interrupt himself in his opening chapter and charge the young Timothy, a pastor named Timothy, in order to thank the Lord and to celebrate the grace of God that called him into Christian service? Well, I'll tell you why. I think there are four possible suggestions as to why we have such access to Paul's dramatic testimony. The first, and perhaps the most obvious to me, is this. Paul needed to remember his own story of grace. Paul himself understood that he needed to keep in mind, ever before his mind, because Paul was a man with many talents, and he was a man who was, was often tempted towards pride and the sin of pride. He needed to keep in mind God's own radical story of saving grace. Notice verse 12 of our text, 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Listen, Paul's sincere thankfulness to God for his tender mercy through Christ is the gracious banner hanging over Paul's entire evangelistic career. Not only was the grace of Jesus Christ the cause of Paul's salvation, but specifically Paul points here to the fact that it was the source of his strength to perform his gospel ministry. See, some of us think that God gets us to the threshold of the church and that we maintain us in the threshold of the church, and you couldn't be more wrong. It is the grace of God that brings us to faith. It is the grace of God that keeps us in faith. It is the grace of God that grows us in faith. And Paul understood that well. In at least two different places in Acts chapter 9, that conversion account, we are told that this persecutor turned apostle and preacher was strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, verses 18 and 19 read this way. And immediately... Something like scales fell from, fell from my eyes, and he regained his sight from his eyes. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, Paul was strengthened. He was strengthened. Then just a few verses later, we read in Acts 9.22, but Saul, because that was his Jewish name, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, a few years later, and now in a Roman prison, and for the cause of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul writes this to the Philippians, words that you will well remember. Philippians 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you indeed were concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the verse we all memorize and share so often out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't it interesting that Paul, throughout his ministry, counted on the grace of God, not just for his salvation, but for his strength, for his strength. Around the same time as Philippians, Paul wrote elsewhere to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. And friends, this passage is my pastoral philosophy. I pray this passage so often for my life and for our church. Paul says here, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was to be given for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's my prayer so often for you. And notice what Paul says last in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all 
his energy that he works powerfully within me. If I tried to do my work as a pastor on my own strength, I would wilt and die day in and day out. And I know it because I've tried it. But as I rest in the grace of Jesus, there is a strength that is supernatural and sustains. You see, the point is that this once proud Pharisee who sat at the feet of the great Gamaliel and who in ignorance and unbelief had blasphemed the precious name of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, and further who had brutally and zealously harassed and persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ from house to house and city after city, how this man himself had been saved. And more than that, he had been strengthened in the grace of Almighty God. Paul didn't write to Timothy, I thank me that God qualified me. He said, I thank thee that he qualified me. He was not thanking himself. He was thanking his heavenly father. Beloved, God gets the glory in our gracious salvation as we get the grace and the strength to know him more and more and to serve him. That's a bargain. I would encourage all of you to sign up for that bargain. He gets the guilt. Jesus gets the guilt. You get the grace. Sign up today. Even after nearly three decades of knowing and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, with literally hundreds if not thousands of disciples to his credit, and tens of churches having been planted under his ministry, and more than a dozen letters having been written by the Apostle Paul, he could sing with the hymn writer Charles Gabriel these words, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. The fact of the matter is that the more and more that you or I comprehend the depths of God's grace and the truth of the gospel, the more and more we will realize that our salvation is not the result of our own works. It is the fruit of God's grace. Paul's own testimony proves, at least to me, that as Christians, we should spend our entire lives growing up into this identity and standing in awe of God's amazing grace. Brian, we sing a song from time to time, I'll never get over it, and I always think of Paul. I'll never get over God's grace. Paul's inspired interruption, and this really is an interruption in chapter 1, is a fitting exclamation of thanksgiving to the one who qualified Paul that enabled him to be a fruitful and faithful ambassador of grace. Paul didn't earn his salvation. Paul didn't earn his service in the church. But rather, he knew that it came from Jesus Christ. That somehow God, Jesus Christ, qualified a persecutor. He judged a persecutor faithful and entrusted a gospel ministry to him. That's amazing. And that's one reason why this text is in the Bible. But I think there's another reason. And I'd like to share that with you as well. So Paul, due to his proclivity towards spiritual pride, never lost sight 
of God's amazing grace. But there is a second person that needed to see God's grace to a persecutor like Paul. And his name is Timothy. Pastor Timothy needed to hear or be reminded of Paul's amazing testimony. Why so? Well, we need to bear in mind that many of these same church members that Timothy was charged to pastor that would have been sitting under Timothy's leadership would have most certainly had known and personally met the great apostle Paul. This is the city of Ephesus, you remember, and Paul had spent no fewer than three years pastoring the church in Ephesus. They would have likely, these church members would have likely, and perhaps quite unfortunately, compared Timothy's timid ministry to the lion-like qualities of the great apostle Paul. In other words, they would have judged Timothy's weak sermons by those of the brilliant and powerful and eloquent apostle. Sort of like how I felt a little judged following the great and prolific ministry of Pastor Alan Miller here at Trinity. I came quivering in my shoes, I hope you don't know, seven years ago, to fill the pulpit that Pastor Alan once filled. And I'm so grateful that he did. Listen, some, therefore, I think, rightly suspected, rightly suspected Paul's little testimonial trip down memory lane served as an additional reminder both to Timothy and, not just to Timothy, but to his congregation of just how awful Paul really was once upon a time. There's a sense in which Paul is brutally honest about his past to bump himself down a few pegs in their eyes. I think that's a reason why these words are in the Bible. Currently, this testimony was intended to inspire, to infuse a little courage and, and gospel strength into a young minister who undoubtedly had his hands full there ministering in the city of Ephesus. Paul says, in a sense, Timothy, if God can use me, he can certainly use you. Now, Chuck Swindoll smartly includes a little scene from the great Metropolitan Tabernacle in London where Charles Haddon Spurgeon famously preached. Upon Spurgeon's untimely death, this church uh, was looking for Spurgeon's successor, and the New York Times ran this article. Mr. Spurgeon's possible successor, the Reverend Dr. Arthur T. Pearson, who may fill the pulpit of the London Tabernacle, preached in the Reformed Church of Brooklyn Heights last evening. Dr. Pearson has been much discussed recently as the possible successor of Dr. Spurgeon. Shortly after Dr. Spurgeon's death, Dr. Pearson, who hails from Philadelphia, was invited to preach in the London Tabernacle, and he remained there for a year under a temporary call. He became a great favorite with the congregation and would in all probability have been made the permanent pastor, except for a strong feeling among some of the members of the church that Dr. Spurgeon's own son should succeed to the place made famous by his father. In order to test the younger Spurgeon's strength, he was recently installed on a year's trial. At the expiration of such a time, the Londoners will decide whether they want to keep him or have Dr. Pearson. Dr. Pearson has a fine delivery and is a most eloquent preacher. Close quote. That's the article. How would you like to be Charles Spurgeon's son at that moment? 
Well, Pastor Swindoll concludes that evidently the congregation found that the younger Spurgeon's strength was substantial enough to leave him in the place. And the end of the story is that he served faithfully for 15 long years. Well, listen, just as Paul was a pardoned man prepared for a particular task, so too was young Timothy. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ had strengthened Paul for a long and fruitful ministry and a hard labor in the gospel, so too had God's mercy and power been made readily available to this young, timid, rookie pastor. See, Paul sought intentionally to inspire, to encourage, to comfort and equip Timothy with fresh insight into the unconditional, purposeful, powerful, and praiseworthy nature of God's mercy for God's ministers. Timothy, if he brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. Timothy, remember I was nothing special. In fact, it is a miracle of divine mercy that Jesus has judged me faithful and appointed me to his service as an apostle. I know things are hard here, Timothy, in Ephesus, but Jesus can do for you what Jesus has done for me. Paul's powerful testimony of God's amazing grace was useful and effective, not only in Paul's life to bump him down, but it was useful and effective in Timothy's life To build him up. But I think there's another reason, or perhaps another group, in Paul's mind behind these words. Look back with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 7. Here Paul states, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Notice clearly next. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's stop there. Who does that sound like? Who does that remind you of? Can you think of anyone familiar to the story of Paul's testimony, and I mean really close to Paul's testimony, of which that sounds? It sounds like Paul to me. It sounds like Paul who was desiring to be a teacher of the law, but without understanding either what he was saying or the things about which he made confident assertions. See, Paul the proud and woefully misguided Pharisee is right here in black and white. We read of this also in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 and following, one of those six instances of Paul's dramatic testimony. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says here, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, if you want to boast in an earthly resume, I'll put mine next to yours any day. 
But it, in the end, was utterly empty and bankrupt. I needed the grace of Jesus. When it comes to the power of the gospel and the goodness of God's grace, listen to me, there are no lost causes. There are no lost causes. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why Paul penned these words, how he interrupted himself and encouraged young Timothy and took these potentially embarrassing trip down uh, memory lane was for the benefit of those that we spoke of weeks ago who themselves were tragically wrapped up in some foolishness and prideful arrogance that ensnared the, the mighty Apostle Paul once upon a time. Those blasphemers, those Pharisees, those teachers of the law, the false teachers in Ephesus. Paul's compassionate heart comes shining through to me. He says in verse 13, But I received what? Mercy. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me, for me, with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Timothy, don't give up in the ministry and don't give up on those in your ministry. There are no lost causes in the gospel of God's infinite grace. In other words, Paul says, if God can save and use a former blasphemer like me, if God can use an, a, a, a former persecutor and an insolent opponent like me, Timothy, God can save anybody. God can save anybody in your church, even the hardest nut God can crack. He's the God of the impossible. That's exactly Paul's point in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do we like mixing with sinners? The closer I get to Jesus, the more I like to mix with sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world not to save those who were well, but those who were sick. That's the gospel. And to the degree that we have forgotten the gospel is to the same degree that we are inept as a church. We must, we must remember the gospel. For we were once sinners. We were once ensnared in false teaching. We were once running in rebellion against Almighty God. But He saved us. He saved us. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why did God save Paul? And frankly, why did God save you? God's grace saves us not simply to bring us individually out apart from the world and unto everlasting life. God did not save you to spoil you. God did not save you to shelter you and to fill your life with nothing but ease and good things. God saved you to squeeze the world out of you. God saved you to send you into the world with his love and with the truth of his gospel. God saved you to be an outline of redemption. Paul's improbable salvation and subsequent prolific service was a prototype, a sketch, 
a pattern and a model. All concepts created to that Greek word used here in, in verse 16. Hypotaposis. I can't say that right, but that's what it says in the Greek. It's a word that simply means an example. It's a prototype. It's a sketch. It's an outline or a model or an example for those who were to believe in Christ for eternal life. And yes, listen to me, that may have included Hymenaeus and Alexander that we'll read about next Sunday morning. Those false teachers, those errant elders there in Ephesus. Paul says in verse 20 of the first chapter, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to do what? Not to blaspheme. And what was he? He was a blasphemer. Do you see why Paul wrote his testimony down now? At least perhaps for one reason. That they might read those words and say, my goodness, my blasphemy doesn't put me me completely outside of God's reach of grace. He can still save me. God saves blasphemers. God saves sinners. He saved Paul. He could do it again for these ignorant, unbelieving blasphemers and persecutors in Ephesus. There is great usefulness and power in gospel humility and honesty. If you have not shared your real story with anybody you're missing an opportunity to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it calls for discernment. I'm not saying that you always need to be sharing every grimy detail, but we also need to be pretty honest with where we've come from by grace. It's interesting that Paul points to God's perfect patience with him in several places. For the sake of time, I'll just share one of them. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. Three to five. Paul says here, Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. You can maybe just jot down 2 Peter 3, verses 14 to 18, and read those verses later, where Paul, Peter is writing about Paul's own example of patience in that passage. Frankly, I can't help but wonder how many self-professing experts and teachers of the law there in Ephesus, or throughout church history for that matter, have read of Jesus' tender mercy to the murderous man Paul, And so been saved. For you, be it pride or pornography, be it stealing or self-absorbed living, be it arrogance or spiritual apathy, whatever your sin, whatever your story, there is grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Don't hide from the Lord. Come running into his arms. Somebody in your home your neighborhood, your workplace, or your family needs to hear how much God has loved you. They need to hear your story. Because every rescued sinner is simply a testament to God's amazing grace. We're all trophies of His glory and of His grace. And that's where I want to end here this morning. 
Because Paul's testimony, powerful and personal, was firstly for himself, secondly for Timothy, thirdly, potentially for the false teachers, but fourthly, it was for you. It was for you. You might be the final reason why Paul's testimony is written right here in black and white. You might have walked in the doors this morning saying, you know what, I'm going back, but I'm not sure God can really love me. I've done too much. I've sinned too greatly. I'm not sure that the arm of God's salvation can actually reach me. Have you ever had that thought? Many have. Fill in the following sentence in your own mind. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save, fill in the blank. The Bible uses the word sinners, but I want you to make it personal. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. I want you to put your name in that blank when I reach the point that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Dan Williams. You see, we got to make it personal, friends. Do you really believe that God sent Jesus for you? Do you acknowledge that the gospel means that Jesus Christ is God's holy and perfect son, the only savior for sinful people, and that you are one of the sinners who needs to be saved? Philip Jensen helpfully explains that Christ's patience with Paul, the blasphemer, is the classic example of God's plan for our salvation. It is not about us and our good works or morality, but about God and his plans for our good in Christ Jesus. God's anger with sin is slow and patient, waiting for just the right time to send the Savior, waiting for the repentance of those who will believe the gospel. God's patient kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, and it must not be presumed upon. Christ's patience with sin and evil means our salvation. And Paul's appointment, just like his very salvation, was all to the glory of God. The end of your story and mine, and mine is not our praise, but rather it is God's. And that's how Paul ends in verse 17. He says, in conclusion, to the king of kings... Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here is the first of three precious poems in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Three pieces of poetry that all have a common theme that Christ is King and Lord above all. Paul caps off his thankfulness and his remembrance of his own personal testimony by declaring a personal anthem of praise to the eternal king, to the immortal Lord of life who rose from the dead, to the highly exalted and invisible and the only God who sits and reigns in glory above and who alone is able to strengthen and to save mankind. Simply put, we don't deserve the credit or the glory for our salvation, or our service. Paul reminds Timothy, and he reminds you and I today, God alone does. God alone deserves the glory. Our only qualification, our only contribution for salvation 
and for service is the sin that we bring to the table. Everything else is grace. We bring the guilt. God gives the grace. We bring the sin. Jesus comes to save. Have you met him? Do you know him? Has he changed your story? Three or four uses to keep you humble with Paul, to encourage and build you up with Timothy, to lovingly warn and rescue with the false teachers, or perhaps for some this morning, to save you for the first time with others there in Ephesus. May God use his word in our lives. Let's pray. Again, O oh gracious Father and Lord, we thank you here at the conclusion of this sermon. Grateful, Father, for your work in redemption, for your work in inspiration and preserving this text for us and for our good. But we're also grateful that we don't serve a God who, who only worked in the past. You're a God of salvation and grace today. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever any specific individual worshiper this morning Whatever he or she, how they need to respond, Lord, would you give them grace to do so? For some, it might be in repentance. It might be in confession. For others, Lord, it, it might be in uh, a confidence to, to serve in the gospel ministry, or perhaps that you're calling them into gospel ministry. For somebody, Lord, this morning, it might be that they hear that they are savable, that you are the God who can save Paul, you can save them. Whatever it is, Lord. Would you accomplish your will from your word through the Son of Jesus Christ for his glory as we pray this in his name. Amen.